And every day I'm getting requests, whether it's a call, a text, a Facebook message from parents. And, and you know, honestly, today I have struggled watching whole football games. And so um, I want you guys to, to hopefully pick up something that I'm saying, something that me and Aaron um, are talking about. And at the end of the show and, and probably in the bio, you'll see some contact information for me to feel free to reach out. And hopefully I can offer some guidance and work through this whole process for you, but it's a lot. And no matter where you're at in the journey with your family, whether you suspect a problem, whether they know they currently have one or they passed away, unfortunately, and you want to see their spirit live on. This is what me and Aaron are talking about today. And uh, we're glad you're listening and we want to help you. So my question I want to start with, you actually already alluded to. Luke, can you even watch a football game now without missing it, without feeling triggered, without maybe even jonesing for a hit? Yeah, you you know, it, that's a great question. And I'll tell you, the extent of me watching probably professional football is I still have a few buddies that play. So sometimes if they play down here in Miami, I'll go watch a game or if I'm up traveling up north, I'll go check out a game. But part of, uh, I think, what kept me really sick was a lot of guilt and shame that came along with such a good opportunity I had in life and really letting this world and my addiction pull that all away from me. And about the only thing it didn't take from me was my life, thankfully. And so to be on the other side now, I'm extremely grateful. Full honesty, I, I wouldn't trade the life I have right now if you told me I could go back to the NFL. And there's um, there's a life on the other side of addiction and it's, it's called recovery and God's grace. And um, there's a whole community out there. So I do miss it um, every now and then. I'll I'll uh, go play some flag football, but I can't hit anybody. So, you know, <laughs> I do miss it, but I'm okay with not playing. Okay, so let's go back to the story now. My assumption is you started playing when you were a kid. Your dad got way into it with you. It became a, a, a kind of a family focus thing was Luke's games in junior high and high school and everything. And then, you know, how did you, how did you get from beginning to the injury? Yeah, I think I naturally gravitated towards sports. And what's whenever I'm asked to share my story or asked to talk to whether it's recovery groups or church groups, I always tell everyone my first drug was football. My first drug was sports. And a lot of what sports did for me was a lot of what drugs would end up doing for me, which was it allowed me to be somebody that I necessarily wasn't. When I was at practice or I was at games, nothing else mattered. Um, no problems I had couldn't be erased and kind of exactly what drugs would do. But I started playing football when I was five years old, basketball when I was five. And so really came really naturally. I, I worked hard at certain points in my life for sure, but really was a natural love and a natural fit. And actually my father wasn't like one of those like over the top dads, surprisingly. He wasn't a, he wasn't a football dad. He wasn't the one making sure you were practicing twice as much as you wanted to. No, he was always extremely supportive of whatever. And it became a focus for our family because, you know, obviously it became important in the family's life or the children's life. So the parents, my parents were great parents. And so it became a focus for everybody. So my little brother actually just finished up a great career at Robert Morris University and playing. A, he was an academic All-American uh, two years in a row. Wow. So very smart, talented kid. So 
And my sister was an all-conference volleyball player. So so sports, for some reason, in our family were just... Um, and do your parents want any other kids? I, I wouldn't mind going to sign up there. Maybe they'd be better at sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. My, it's funny. My dad's 6'5". My mom's like 5'6". And it's... Uh, we all got good genes as far as, you know, six feet and could, could naturally or fast, fast family. And so, um, yeah, it, it's something that came for everyone in our family, but, but things were good. Honestly, I drank one time in high school and my mother, who's a hundred percent Italian, she, she beat me when I came home. <laughs> and I, I got grounded for the whole summer. So any kids wow. listening, you think your parents are strict. My mother beat me with a wooden spoon. And then she's, I got grounded for my summer going into my senior year. Wow. I'm in high school. And my mother probably knew a little bit more than I did about addiction issues. And I guess it kind of ran in our family a little bit. I'm curious if there was at any time in high school or even in, in, in junior high when you started, was there a head injury that maybe could have led to, you know, some of the things later on, uh, 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 you know, TBI is a, is is big in the news, especially around football. Do you recall a bad head injury or anything like that that might have helped produce what happened later on in college? You know, that's a great question, and it's something that I've kind of had to ex- accept, not knowing a lot of those answers, only because a lot of what they know now is post mortem. Um, they can't really do too much study on the brain um, without without an actual, um, you know, a, a, someone who's passed away brain. So I'm curious to know, too, I don't know if too much of it went into my later issues. And I say that because from a very young age, probably like 12 or 13, I had this, I had a different bug and it was gambling. And so I think I showed a lot of tendencies of someone that was very compulsive at a young age. Uh, my father actually put me in a Gamblers Anonymous meeting at the age of 13 because he was fam- familiar with the fellowships. Um, but when you're at 13 years old, you don't really listen to anything anyone says. Now, this is something new in my research of you. I hadn't I hadn't seen anything on on an early gambling. First of all, was this online stuff? Did this actually cost money? Like like where where did your gambling take place at the, especially at the age of 12 and 13 how did that show up yeah you know it's interesting about you saying that i always mention it to people but it kind of gets like swept under the rug and you're, you're one of the first people to really um you know expand on it which i think is great because a lot of the relationships i've made in this field with guys that are you know 10 20 years sober they're struggling with gambling and it runs rampant in the recovery community it sure does compulsive gambling absolutely so I'd always sit down and meet with these guys and tell them my, my clean dates actually, additionally, my last time I gambled. I always make a point to say that. But um, what happened when I was like 12 or 13, I don't know if you remember, but poker started to get televised on TV. So like Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker. Then all of a sudden, Full Tilt Poker has all these online things. And it kind of became like this national thing. So like we're going to little Jimmy's house playing the $3 poker tournaments. And you just kind of get linked up with a group of guys that gambling became like this went from like something you do on a Friday night to the same way as a drug. And I tell people gambling took me to some of my lowest places in my life. 
No kidding. Uh, yeah, and I'll, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, but the treatment center I went to actually specialized additionally um, with gambling along with drugs and alcohol. This is fascinating. Okay, so now I'm I'm assuming you were so good in high school. You you guys you had scouts looking at you, and did you end up with a full ride to to Kent State? How did how did the transition take place from high school to college? So in Ohio they have divisions one, which is the biggest, to division six, which is the lowest. So we were division three, about a thousand kids in our school, and so I definitely had scouts looking at me. I, I excelled. Um, at that level, but it was still a little bit smaller than a lot of big time colleges like to take. Well, listen, let's, let's clarify for people who don't know, uh, high school football in the Midwest is like Friday night lights, baby. Like it is a big deal in those towns. Uh, Those I've seen high schools with full tilt stadiums for, for football. My senior season, we played a local team in the regional finals and there was 15,000 people at the game. (laughs) That's amazing. Actually, Youngstown, Ohio, where I'm from, has the highest per capita amount of NFL football players to this day. So it's incredible. Wow. In my senior class of like 30 schools, there was 90 Division One athletes for football. I mean, it was incredible. Is there is there underneath this with the gambling, with the high school football, is there a, um, I almost want to call it like a brain chemistry drive. Like, are you getting a rush out of this in high school? Are you getting a rush out of 15,000 fans? Are you feeling like the addictive full? Cause you said football was your first addiction. And then you reveal that there's actually underneath that there's also gambling. Like, are you an adrenaline junkie? Yeah, absolutely. And even deeper than that, I think they just all kind of correlate the same, whether you look at it. And this is like something I had to really work on in recovery was whether it was sports or gambling or drugs or alcohol. It was just all an escape for me. So and it was Luke. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was who I was exactly. Like there was no running for myself as much as I tried at anything. And so, yeah, I think absolutely. It was definitely, um, it was something that I lived my life around were these times, whether it was football, gambling, drugs later on in life. Right. It was the circle and it was who I was. And so I think a lot of times too, and even with myself, once you take away, I guess what you would call, I, you could call sports healthy and they were the way I approached them was not healthy. Is that a common theme among athletes that, that we're, we're dealing with, you know, exercise anorexia and body dysmorphia and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I think you're seeing a lot more people talk about that stuff. with yeah. sports. Yeah, no, I absolutely think that, that, that has something to, to do with it. So, so you got scouted in, you're at Kent State University, which is man for football. That's a big deal. Your your safety is this all correct? Am I online so far? You nailed it. You're able to score lots of baskets. No, I know a little bit more about <laughs> it than that. <laughs> so t- so talk about th- there were multiple injuries. Yeah, yeah, multiple injuries. The first major one was I I stepped into a starting role at the beginning of my sophomore season, and. I think it was like the third or fourth game we played Louisiana Lafayette and I actually broke my ankle and I ended up playing through the rest of the season on a broken ankle. Of course you did. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's it. Like Midwest blue, blue chip, um, blood in me. And it's also 
you know, that whole mentality of being a man, being there for your teammates, the warrior mindset. So, you know, they'd give me toward all shots. They'd give me um, whatever was needed to, to play. And then after the season, I had surgery on my ankle. Kind of the first time I was prescribed to pain medication. What they prescribe you? They prescribed me Vicodin. The first time, it was the first time I was exposed to pain medication. But at that time in my life, things were still pretty good. So I really took it as prescribed. I didn't abuse it. It never became an issue. I guess I just kind of tucked that feeling that it gave me in my back pocket. Like I just knew that pain medication killed pain. Like that was the job. And that was my first injury and experience with them. So you just brought up a topic that, that I think right now I'd like to establish the golden thread for you as you know, some, there, there are people in the recovery industry who call this a disease and it's, it's something, you know, that, that, uh, well, there, there's people in, in recovery who say this is trauma informed that, that something happened trauma wise, um, it, whether that's environmental uh, or, you know, social, uh, you know, a family member doing something to you. Um, it's genetics. You've got grandparents who were, you know, addicts, alcoholics, um, or that this this was informed by a, uh, a gateway process. You started with gambling and then that went into smoke and pot and then that went into drinking and that went into is it, is it any of the above? Is it all the above? You got a mix of few, like, like where's your golden thread? How did this, how did this end up in Luke? I think it's a combination. I think, I think it's some trauma enforced. And I think a lot of it starts with very innocent decisions. And I'll talk about this in a second. Okay. I've, I've used drugs with people that never became an addict, you know, the same drugs multiple times. And then I know for a fact, they don't, there's nothing they're hiding. They moved on in their life. And this is where I think the trauma comes in. And I was very ignorant to these different emotions. So my senior season, we're playing LSU. And I want to preface it with my junior season. I had an all American season. I led the conference in interceptions. I was fifth in tackles. Our team was 15th in the country. And we were a game away from the orange bowl. So I saw my dream of playing in the NFL coming true. I had agents and scouts, and this was it. I was destined. I was projected a late-round draft pick. It's very, very exciting. So the third game, my senior season, we're playing LSU. And for people that know football, they had guys like Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry, Jeremy Hill, Zach Mettenberger. The who's who of the NFL was watching this game for uh, multiple reasons. Their talent, our talent, NFL talent. So the third play of the game, I tackle a guy and blow my left MCL out. And at the time, there was no redshirt rules. I had to make a decision at that point as a young 21-year-old, do I kind of like forfeit my NFL dream 16 years or do I do something to make the pain go away to, to keep playing, to see my NFL dream come true? And so I made a decision to, I knew that pain medication kills pain. I didn't have surgery, so I couldn't get it from a doctor. So I made a decision, a very innocent choice at the time to take a couple Percocets before we played Penn State. And what I didn't know at the time, like I'm saying, were these emotional trauma issues, right? Right. So for the first time in my life, I had a pretty good life. I always excelled in sports. My parents, I never needed 
And, but for the first time in my life, I started to experience depression about the timing of the injury. I started experiencing anxiety about my NFL future. I started to experience stress that I never realized. And what happened with those Percocets killing physical pain, which they did because I had 15 tackles against Penn State in front of 110,000 people. But what else, the worst thing it did was it killed emotional pain. It killed all those different fears, all those different traumas that I had. It was blocked out. And so I see that story so often, whether it's a kid that was a great high school athlete, that he's upset that it's, it's ending now and he needs something to block out that pain. He starts taking a couple of Percocets and it snowballs into something crazy. Or, you know, a, a war veteran, you talk about a hero. We right. call these people heroes. They, they came back from Iraq and they, you know, started taking a couple of Xanax to block out the pain of seeing uh, the trauma of seeing, you know, their brother get killed over there. Right. And all of a sudden it snowballed into something. Or I, all the time I work with, you know, young ladies that are 30, maybe 35 years old now that were molested at the age of 13 and they just started drinking very innocently just to block out the horrors of being molested by, right. by a family member. And it snowballed into something deeper. And for me, a kid that was, since he was five years old, wanted to play in the NFL and it snowballed on me too until a point where I became a heroin addict eventually. And so for me and my personal opinion on it and um, talking with a lot of people, I believe it's very good people with very innocent decisions that were toppled with some type of emotional trauma that turned into a nightmare, a living and breathing nightmare. And I see it all the time with people. It's, it's you know, that's why I think people relate to, to my story. It's whether they played sports or not, they had a dream. They had some different type of emotional trauma. They did something that was very innocent. And before they knew it, they were, you know, in a pit they couldn't grab themselves out of. Did you then, or do you now hold the the university any responsibility for either providing medical? Because because you talked about in your in your first injury where you're like you know this this young man, and and the truth is is that you still weren't a man at that time. You were still you were you're in your sophomore year, so you were like 19, like like you're barely barely over the edge and and you know now working in the recovery industry how use and addiction and stuff like that delays are growing up and so do you want to or do you actually hold uh other people responsible for for giving you percocet or for you know shooting you up with these pain meds when really you should have taken a long trip and had had you know good advice from doctors who are paid a lot of money by these schools like or are you taking this one full on as like, this was all Luke? I think for the sake of sanity, I, I, I've taken a lot of it on, onto my back. But what I have done, because I, I think there is a, a burden of responsibility. And I'll tell you this, when I went public with my story, I did get from certain entities at Kent State, I got a little bit of pushback. And it was unfortunate because it was a great chance to learn and to educate Kent State since has had me back to speak to all their student athletes. Um, the Mid-American Conference yeah. saw my story and I got to speak to all the athletic directors, all the medical directors, all of the coaches of the entire conference to really educate them on what to look for and how things can be different. Because the one thing I'll say is it was a different time back then, even five, six, seven years ago. Right. Uh, and so 
I want to use my story as a, as a chance to educate these people so that ignorance like myself is no longer an excuse for them. I had a, one of the top recruits in our recruiting class passed away two years ago um, of an overdose. Wow. And I can't tell you how many guys from my team I've put through treatment um, or helped get into treatment. So it is sad, but now the so-called elephants you know, out of the room. So we're going to go ahead and talk about this. We're going to learn or we're going to be held accountable. And I've just chosen the route of I'm going to teach you. I'm going to try to educate you. And um, I forgive you. A lot of grace has been shown on my life. So I'm going to give you grace. And now let's be better for the next generation. You talked about it going from a few Percocet before a game where then in the game you were able to make, I think you said 15 tackles against Penn State into full-blown heroin addiction. How long did that take? I mean, that's, that's quite, a, quite a jump from a couple per- Percocet into heroin. However, those of us in the business, on both sides of the business, understand how fast that jump can make. What happened? How long did it take you? I like to tell people, you know, these, these, these drugs and, you know, with my faith, I say the enemy really is very deceptive and very, like I said, very innocent. So take two Percocets before the game. Then the following week, you know, I probably took two Percocets on Wednesday to get through the week and then on game day. Then the following week, it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday game. Then it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday game. Then it was to wake up. Then it was to go to sleep. And like inch by inch, step by step, these things were intertwining themselves into my life more and more. Like the boundary kept getting pushed a little bit. Like one innocent decision turned into a little bit of a bad decision to a worse decision to a worse decision. And it's like I was climbing to the top of Mount Everest, innocent decision into not even realizing I'm in addiction at this point, but just continuing to push that the boundary. Where were you getting the money for this? At the time, um, you know, I was a full scholarship athlete. Got it. And so with, with that comes about, I want to say at the time, about $5,000 for each semester. And it, my addiction wasn't that bad to the point where I was, or what I at least thought, to the point where I was, you know, like by the end of the years, it was very expensive. But at this time, it was just more of like progressing to very expensive. So How expensive we were, is very expensive? Um, you're talking about probably somewhere between $150 to $300 a day, a day, a day. Yeah. Yeah. Very expensive for anybody, let alone somebody who can't hold a job. Anyways, my senior night, right. the last game that where I'm supposed to honor my parents, these drugs had just like completely warped my mind to thinking now I need them to be who I'm supposed to be. So there was no way I could play without them. And the drug dealer at the time told me he was out of the Percocet and kind of tricked me with me turning my head the other way to, you know, why don't you try this stuff? It's just like a Percocet. And that was my first experience with heroin was a night that I was supposed to honor and respect my parents um, for all the sacrifices that they made for me. And I had a horrible game, obviously, really my first go with heroin. Did he shoot you up? He did not shoot me up. No, I, I was always... um I actually never used a needle. I was always through. Um, I always snorted 
the heroin or the pills or whatever the case may be. Has it been a real, you know, I'm watching the video here, you and I, and not everybody will watch the YouTube video of this and stuff like that. But there was a real change when you talked about honoring your parents that night on heroin was, I mean, that, that, that hit you hard. It always does. It does. I mean, I don't regret. I'm grateful for the life I have now. Sure. There's anything that I feel horrible about. It's the pain that I caused them. I know that they've moved past it. I know that they're in a great place, but you know, it's still, still tough. It's it. Um, they know that we've been called to a greater purpose as a family since I've gone public with it. But every time I start talking about it, I just, I can go right back to that moment. Sure. And remember just how bad it was. I, I had a, I had a graduate say while he was still in the facility, he said, I can handle what I've done. I just can't handle what I've done to others. That's right. You know, and that, and that really is a big deal. That, that one kind of lasts longer. You, you did make it through that experience. You did end up working in the NFL for a minute. Yeah. So pretty much the next six months I trained for the NFL, I got an agent who I've actually made an amends to and great guy, Derek Fox out of California. He represented some big guys like Steve Smith and I wasted his time, but he's uh he was a great guy and, I was actually just talking to him a couple of weeks ago. So uh, very grateful for him. And he's very supportive. He's like, congratulations, Luke. It's, just, it's great to hear that you're doing better. But pretty much because of my body of work in college, in 2014, I was picked up by the New Orleans Saints. And I was in full-blown addiction. And it's really, really tough to play at that level, you know, in active addiction. So it wasn't, you know, it, it was as short as this cup of coffee that I'm drinking. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, I'm very grateful for the experience. Is the tunnel vision of the agents and the scouts and the trainers and the team doctors so much so that no one could spot it? Or did people spot it, pull you aside and, and try to talk you out of it? Did anybody know or did you really have this thing wrapped up that tight? I don't know if I had it wrapped up that tight or if I just pushed everyone far enough away so they couldn't see it. That's the one thing I say to a lot of coaches and a lot of administrators when I talk to them is isolation is the hardest thing to spot, but the number one indicator of addiction, right? Like you think about every recovery group, every recovery group, what is it? It's, you know, it's a group. It's a group. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so like, what is the opposite of that? It's, you know, it's isolation. And so I just think I had everyone pushed so far away and kind of in like a place where you couldn't tell me anything, where it was tough for people to notice. They probably in hindsight noticed, but this wasn't the conversation back then. It wasn't, it wasn't there. It wasn't where we are now because of people like you talking about it. You know, my parents had no clue, you know, really how bad it was and, how could anyone – I was just a three-time all-conference player at Kent State. It's only something that's been done three times in the last 20 years at right. the program. So, you know, it's tough to be like, this kid's a drug addict, but somehow he's a three-time all-conference football <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a, people don't understand. Like, like you're shown the uh, – you know, we're shown, we're shown pictures. I get, Just recently I saw a guy who was Narcaned back to life, you know, and he's just – he's drooling and urinating on himself and the people are trying to get him to stand up and that's the image that we're sold in movies but here you're talking you're a functional heroin addict 
playing in the, you know, practicing to, to, to start in the NFL and three time champion. Like I did, did anybody see this? Did anybody pull you aside and say, dude, WTF, like, like, are you, are you in or you out? Did, did anybody try to intervene? No, I think maybe my girlfriend at the time, but it was really hard for people to spot. And I always, it's, I love that you said that. You know, I always go into schools and I ask one of the first questions I ask thousands of students is raise your hand if you want to grow up and be a heroin addict. And I've never had a student raise their hand. And me and you both know that that's just not reality. It's not reality. So instead of talking about our last day, the last day that we show up of these addicts on the news, we need to be talking about the, what's the first day look like. Man. You know, and I think that's what's missed in this conversation. Like, I mean, Listen, if you would have talked to me seven, eight years ago and you would have told me I would have been a heroin addict, you know, leave me alone would have been the kindest words I would have said to you. <laughs> flipping mine, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> There's just no way it was going to happen to me. And I think a lot of people feel that way until we start talking about the first day. Let's talk about what it really looks like. Right. Because it could be any of us at any moment. It really, it's, it does not discriminate against anyone. I've seen every type of person touched by this. And so, no, it was tough for people to notice. It really was. So rock bottom, what was, what was the day that you came clean to your parents? You have a beautiful story about, about your dad and and a very, what I, what I like to call those sacred moments, but what was rock bottom? What was the thing that made you have to cough it up to the team and cough it up to your agent and cough it up to your parents. Well, at this time, my agent pretty much called me with like a Canadian offer and arena offer. And I told him I had no interest at all. I had this grand idea to move to Las Vegas in my mind and, you know, drink and use drugs. Just insanity is what it is. But um, I moved back to Cincinnati after new Orleans got fired, blamed everybody else. Then moved back to Youngstown, Ohio, which is for people that don't know, it's about 400. It's a Cincinnati is the southwest corner of Ohio, and about 400 miles to the northeast is Youngstown, Ohio. And so then I moved back home to where I was from, Youngstown. My own father fired me from a job. That's how bad it was. And so then I moved back to Cincinnati, and I got fired again as an academic advisor, which is scary. You know, you talk. I'm four or five years into an addiction and I'm an academic advisor. Right. That's a scary thought itself, but, but it just shows you it's anybody. Yeah. I got to the point where I guess the, the pain of living finally surpassed the joy or the escape I got from using the thing that's so scary, even looking back and thinking back is I had this mindset that like, I knew I had a problem but I had this football warrior, what I thought a man looks like mentality where it's, I got myself into this problem. Only I can get myself out disconnected from faith, disconnected from family, disconnected from friends. I have to get myself out of it. I can't tell you how many times I kicked heroin or kicked pills on a couch. I never went to a detox center. You know, I knew I had a problem. I go through the two weeks of hell getting off of this stuff. And the insanity is I could do it one more time. That's the insanity. Finally got to the point where 
I'm living in and out of extended stay hotels, like little crack motels, living in my car. No one wants anything to do with me. I'm emotionally disconnected from my family. Probably hadn't had a real conversation with my father in some time. And it's kind of where the miracle happened. I, I had plans to take my own life the next day. And I just didn't want to live anymore. This world was better off without me in my mind. Um, I had no value to anybody because I was not a football player anymore. And my father, by the grace of God, he said something tugged on his heart. He came down to Cincinnati and he did something that in hindsight is extremely important. He approached me with love, unconditional love. He said, son, I don't care what you've done. I don't know what's happened to you, but I just want my boy back. And, you know, that day, you know, he told me he loved me and that there's help available for me in, in this place called Richmond, Virginia. And I accepted the help. I was so ready to get help, but I had this problem with asking for help. And really for the first time in my life, I received help when somebody offered it. So if he would have never asked me for, for it to get help, I would have been dead, 100%. I wouldn't be alive today if he never offered it. If he would have just said, I'm going to wait for him to come to me, he wouldn't have a son here today. So it's a miracle. And now not only are you, you know, do you take these phone calls and you talk to people, but your work with Banyan, and Banyan does great work. I mean, you're you're part of their treatment team. You're, you're part of the, you're part of the team that's, that's out there with outreach, with, with connecting to people who get on the phone and just say, I think I might have a problem. Is this a rush or is this solidity? Like, like, which is, what is this for you? What, why here? Why not back out now? You're trying downhill sports on a mountain bike while microwaving, you know, chicken or whatever you crazy athletes do. Like why this now? I saw my, my greatest pain in life really get transformed into a great purpose. I didn't really know at the time what that would look like, but I really had that placed on my heart from a, an early time in sobriety. And I didn't, I waited a you know good amount of time before I went public with things to make sure I was in the right place. But um, I tell people I, I wouldn't trade the life I have now to go back to the NFL. You know, my connection with God has never been stronger. My, I, I grew up in the Catholic Church and I was actually rebaptized uh, non-denominational down here. And um, my faith has played a great role in, in where I believe I'm at right now, why I believe that I've gone through things that, that I've gone through and, and come out the other side that, that he was with me this whole time. I feel like I'm rating God's will right now. I feel great about, um, I'm kind of went all in with helping people because it feels like a second chance at life for me. And I think a lot of people end up feeling that way when they come to the other side. It's like, I guess to like experience a little bit of heaven, you have to bend to hell. And so, you know, being in hell, it, um, you want to pull people out of the darkness just to show them a little bit of light. And I think that's why a lot of people get into it. That's why I got into it. How long have you been sober now? Yeah, so I'm coming up on three years, which is amazing. That's congratulations. And it's been a lot of, yeah, praise God, it's been a lot of blessings so fast. And I'm so blessed with a supportive system around me of guys that, that will check me in line. Um, just like I said, it's recovery together. I still have a lot of things that I need to work on personally. I'm far from perfect. 
I'm blessed with a great group of people to, like I said, to make sure that they're lifting, we're lifting each other up. And um, it's been an amazing three years, the best of my life. Do you feel like you're in your recovery long enough that you can start to talk about your five-year plan or are you still in for your one day at a time? Like, are you just taking this day by day still? I, and I, and I ask this respectfully because I know that if I come at someone in recovery too hard, like, man, what are you doing for the next five years? What's your plan? Be like, now I'm going to go use bro. Like, <laughs> because that's an intense thing, but are you, are you in for a five-year plan yet? Or are you still taking this one day at a time and counting, writing that list of blessings each day yeah i you know i'll tell you this i wake up with a lot of gratitude every single day i definitely have longer term goals but i i definitely take things one day at a time in the sense of i don't live in my addiction like i don't let the guilt and shame hold me back but i respect it like i respect that men stronger than me have fallen susceptible with more time than me right and so I have more clean great, time at clean time. We're yeah. talking. Yeah. So I have a great respect that my sobriety is how I view it is my connection with God and understanding that I need to be connected to have a choice to not use or to drink. And if I'm not connected, I could, you know, potentially lose, lose the state of mind to fall victim to it. I mean, it's, it's a very real thing that I've seen happen with people. And so, you know, I definitely have long-term goals, but I also know that this is a daily process. And I'll tell you this, every day I'm learning and something in my life's changing or growing. You know, they say like the addict or the alcoholic emotionally stops growing when they start using. So like I consider myself, you know, young 20s, late teens. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm more or less, you know, one year plan, take it day by day. And let's just really make the day count. What are your go-to coping mechanisms now when you're feeling triggered out, depressed, anxious, the, the idea to use pops up? What do you go to? I have a great group of guys and, and personally in my faith, I go to the word of God um, as something or what I end up doing. It's I end up calling somebody that I know has less time than me. How can I help you check in on them? And, you know, a big part of our process is giving of ourselves because we don't think about our problems when we're worried about someone else's problems. Right. I always think that's like, that's the strongest sign of unconditional love. Like unconditional love saved my life from God, from my father. Now unconditional love that I have for someone struggling, um, no matter what they've done is what also keeps me, you know, from going back out and using. And so trying to help out where I can, you know, sometimes I'll pop into a meeting and, try to contribute or just sit there and listen sometimes, whatever, wherever I'm tugged to do. Sports is another thing for me that I've gotten back into in a healthy way. And what's really funny about it is I talked about sports could be healthy or unhealthy. I actually took a six month break from sports and sobriety because I noticed myself making it an escape again. Really? And if I can enjoy it, yeah, absolutely. If I can't enjoy it like a regular person, you know, like we're supposed to be <laughs> a normal person. <laughs> Good luck with that. If we, yeah, I don't know. That's very. <laughs> <laughs> if I can't enjoy it and not make it about you know getting away from things, then I probably should take a little step back. And I've taken some steps back. I'm, I'm, it's a blessing to recognize those yeah, things. Yeah, it today. is. Yeah, it is. So there's a number of different things for me that that I'll do. 
to help myself. You said at the beginning you'd you'd give people a way to to connect and contact with you. So let's spill those beans now. How can and and like I know you guys at Banyan, you're like you're given like direct lines of of connection. Yeah, absolutely. So first about Banyan, it is a blessing to represent them. I've actually been with them longer. I waited till I got with them to tell my story nationally. And it kind of took off from um, some different NFL buddies putting my, my story out there. But I waited till I was with Banyan. I've actually been with them probably over 50% of my time sober. So like they've kind of been a family to me. Um, a lot of great connections there. And we've, I've seen Banyan grow. We have 10 facilities now wow. um, in Florida, Massachusetts, Illinois, and Pennsylvania. And all the way from um, primary mental health um, to we have different maturity programs so that the right age groups are with each other because there's different problems with different age groups. We have a faith and recovery program, which is something that I represent, which is a Christ-centered program, just a, an adventure track program in right. Clearbrook Mountains. It's beautiful. And so, um, yeah, that number um, that you can call for a confidential assessment is 888 888- Four nine three four four two nine, and also if you are a parent or a loved one of someone struggling, I'm going to give you my personal cell phone. It's three three zero two six one two one six three, and just so you also know, we are in network with over a hundred different insurances. But I want you to know that even if you don't have insurance, that no call goes unheard or is not worthy of getting help. We have a ton of programs that we work with. Banyan offers scholarships through our program as well on certain days. There's always an opportunity to get help. And just because your financial situation is whatever, doesn't mean that you should not get the help that you deserve. So we are going to get you connected with help and one way or the other. So feel free to call that number if you don't want to talk to me. I would love to talk to you. It's what I get to do all day. Um, so go ahead and call my cell phone. Also, you can follow my journey. I'm, I'm blessed to travel and speak across the country. You can follow me on Instagram at Luke, L-U-K-E underscore wallet, W-O-L-L-E-T. Luke Wallet, thank you so much for everything you've said and done, your transparency, your willingness to share the story. It matters, man, and it's a big deal. Uh, and I just want to I just want to express my gratitude for uh, you you stepping, you know, from that limelight into the darkness, back out into the reality where you can really show people the you know, the true light, not the lime-colored one, but the real true light of uh, of hope and faith and recovery and charity which is you know the way you give back like this so luke thank you so much thank you aaron really great work what you do and if anyone out there is listening that's struggling just know that you are loved that there's a purpose for your pain and that the reason me and aaron do what we do is to find you is to bring you to the light so we love you if you haven't heard that in a long time we love you and there's a better life for you and we're going to help you with that 